Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. His dissertation is focused on the Kabbalistic system of thought of Rabbi Joseph Ben Shalom Ashkenazi. Johnny is also preparing a critical edition of Ashkenazi's commentary on Sefer Yitzira, probably the only PhD student in Jewish philosophy who can say that he once beat the head of Israeli naval commandos in a swimming race. Johnny's also the author of Mossad Thriller, The Way Back, which paints a picture of contemporary Israel. Johnny has recently orchestrated the publishing of an English edition of the Hitler Haggadah, an important piece of Moroccan Jewish history from the Holocaust. Johnny has also taken on several leadership roles in the Jewish world, including advisor to the CEO of Birthright and executive manager with Stand With Us. He lectures on a wide variety of topics relating to Judaism and Israel, especially about the untold stories and unspoken heroes of Jewish history. Johnny's happily married with four gorgeous little kids, lives in Israel, and thinks that Australian rules football is the greatest sport ever invented. We're here with Johnny Schnitzer, the Hasidic story, a new window to God. Thank you. Thank you very much for that very warm welcome, uh, Rabbi Shmuley, and thank you very much for the orchestration of everything, Pam. It's lovely to see everyone here. Um, so in, in, in the following hour, I hope I first and foremost hope that we have a meaningful and, uh, uh, and fun hour. And what we're looking at, what we're interested in is Hasidut, right? The, 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 and we're focusing on the Hasidic story. Um, and we're gonna see how this, this new vehicle, perhaps of the revolution of one of Judaism's greatest revolutions, the Hasidic revolution, the, the, the key vehicle which made all of this possible is the Hasidic story. Um, before, and, and we're going to focus on the Baal Shem Tov. We're going to focus on Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov. We are talking about, um, okay, so before we get into what a Hasid means, what is a Hasid? Because it's one of the most complicated words in Jewish history because it has so many different meanings over time. Let's focus on who, when are we talking about in history? So Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov, uh, he is living, he dies in 1760, so we're talking mid-18th century, um, and his name is Rabbi Israel. What does Baal Shem mean, or Baal Shem Tov? He is the owner of a good name. Anyone in Europe at that time who was called a Baal Shem, it meant that they were practical Kabbalists. It meant that they were healers. It meant that they would use names, combinations of names of God, right? They're shtickle Kabbalists in order to heal people, to, to, to make the world a better place. So this is Rabbi Israel Baal Shem. Now, because we're going to focus on the Hasidic story, and we don't have enough time to talk about who Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov was, we're going to learn about him through stories. We're going to tell three stories, perhaps four. One from his prime, one on his deathbed, and one after his death. And if we had to say in a nutshell who Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov was, we could say that he was perhaps a sort of mystical version of David Copperfield, the antithesis of what every Jewish mother and father would want their child to be with. He, he, he is very different. He is something very, very different. And you know what he does? 
in the mid 18th century, he is able to take every single one, almost every single one of the Jewish poster boys, if you like, and he's able to turn them. He's able to create a revolution and change Judaism forever until this very day. And we want to understand how this happened. We want to understand what is the core teaching of Hasidut? What does it mean to be a Hasid? And how is this, what does this have to do with stories? And what we're going to discover is that there is a, an ontological, there is a very deep connection between one of the core teachings of Rabbi Israel and the Hasidic story. There is a deep connection between this, this perhaps the, the foundation upon which Hasidut stands and stories, telling stories. Um, but, but before we begin, just sort of, you know, assuming that we don't know what Hasidut is, or what a Hasid is. Okay, so what does the word Hasid mean? We've heard of Hasidicism. So Hasid has had many different meanings over time. Uh, 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 Hasid or Chesed, right? Compassion, grace, doing good. That is the sort of, that is the word, the root. And then a Hasid is someone who does good, someone who's pious, someone perhaps righteous, even though we have for righteous the word Tzadik. So we have Tzadik and Hasid. When we get to the medieval era, all of a sudden, if you're a Hasid, if you're nicknamed Hasid, you are no longer just someone righteous, someone pious, but you're also someone who's been visited by the prophet Elijah. And he's told you secrets. He's told you mystical secrets about how to make the world a better place. And then we jump to this 18th century, and all of a sudden, after the Baal Shem Tov uh, 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 passes away, and his stories are, are, are floating everywhere, to be a Hasid is going to mean what we're about to find out. But how does it begin? It begins in a little, in a little hut, a little house in the 18th century in Mezhibuzh. This is not where the Baal Shem Tov is born. We're talking about, you know, just above the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ukraine. Um, we're in Mezhibuzh in the 18th century. This is the sort of shtetl. You have a few Hasidim, a few followers of Rabbi Israel Baal Shem. They come into this little hut. And the truth is they don't spend much time there. They're out in the forests. We're about to begin our first story in the forest. But very quickly, not long, less than a century later, you see a, a, a Hasidic dynasties popping up like mushrooms in winter all over Europe. You even see influences in North Africa. And so you have this huge building in Bells with thousands of Hasidim. And then today in modern day Israel, the 21st century, the perhaps one of the biggest the, the biggest shul in Israel is the Bells. It's a Hasidic shul. So what created this mass movement? What was able to take, to take the Jewish world, the Jewish people in the 18th century that were fractured, that were licking their wounds from one of the worst pogroms in Jewish history, the Chemlitzki uprising, close to 100,000 Jews dying in horrific massacres. We are after the Sabbatean movement, a false messiah. And what do Jews have left? Jews have left what is called a Magid. We have a, a social hierarchy, a rabbi that has learned, that has money, so he's able to learn, and he goes from village to village, and he tells people what it means to be Jewish and what they need to do. And this is how it works. And then this mystical David Copperfield comes about and changes everything. So for the sake of our talk today, what would we, what term would we use uh, uh, to define a, a, a chassid? If you ask me, I'd say a down-to-earth Kabbalist. 
right? A down-to-earth mystic, and we're going to see what this means. What is a down-to-earth mystic? How does it work? Okay. After the Baal Shem Tov passes away in 1760, we do not yet have a Hasidic movement. The Baal Shem Tov is a very charismatic figure. He is a healer. He, he knows how to use divine names of God. He's out in the forests. But it's only upon his death that one of the most famous, one of the best sellers in Jewish history is published for the first time in 1814. And it is the legends of the Baal Shem Tov. It is a compilation. It, it is stories. It is an anthology of stories about the Baal Shem Tov, about different miracles he performed, about the purpose of stories. It is all about stories and the purpose of stories. This is where it begins. So let's start with our first story. Let, let's try and get a feel before we get into sort of who we're talking about, what's going on. What better way than story? Okay. We're in the Carpathian Mountains, Baal Shem Tov's home. Romania area, and um, he's got his. He's already got a few followers, and they're in. They're in the little hut, the little home in Mezhibuz. It's 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 a Shabbos afternoon where we're on the third meal, and all of a sudden the Baal Shem Tov gets up. They leave. They have to head out to the forests. They head out to the forests, and all of a sudden, the Baal Shem Tov hears a melody. He hears a very very sweet melody, and he follows the tune. He follows the tune, his followers following after him. And all of a sudden he sees a little shepherd, a shepherd, a Gentile shepherd. He's not a Jew, but he's playing on a wooden flute, the most beautiful melody the Hasidim have ever heard in their life. And the Baal Shem Tov is listening to this melody. He goes up to the boy and he says, I'll give you a kopek. I'll give you a coin if you can play this melody for me again. It's the boy's lucky day. He doesn't get that much in a week. No problem. He takes the Kopik, he plays the melody again. The disciples watch the Baal Shem Tov as Rabbi Israel is, he closes his eyes, he's ecstatic, and he's overjoyed. They don't yet know what's going on, and the melody stops. The Baal Shem Tov opens his eyes, right? He's awoken from his meditation. Here, take another Kopik. Please play it again. And the boy plays it again. It's his lucky day. The boy plays it again. The Baal Shem Tov, at this moment, he starts dancing. He's joyous. He's jumping up and down. And the disciples, they're just watching. They know something's happening. They don't know what, but they're just watching. They've learned this is what you need to do. The melody stops. The Baal Shem Tov wipes the sweat off his forehead. And he says, will you play it one more time? He gives the boy a kopek, the boy plays it again, and this time the Hasidim join in with the Baal Shem Tov and everyone is singing and dancing, they're jumping up and down, and the boy's playing the melody, and it's, 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 it's exhilarating. And the tune comes to an end. Third time, the Baal Shem Tov then says to the boy, will you play it one more time? I'll give you a gold coin. He hands him over the gold coin. The boy can't remember the tune. It's as if he's forgotten the tune. Says the Baal, I'm, I'm very sorry, I didn't. it's okay. Keep the coin, thank you very much. The Baal Shem Tov says to his disciples, right, we're buggering off, as we say in Australia, it's time to go back, back to Mezhibuz. They head back, and on the way back, the, 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 the Talmudian, the students, they, the, the Hasidim, the down-to-earth Kabbalists, ask their teacher, you know, what, what, what was going on there? Because I'll tell you. When the Jews were exiled from, from Jerusalem, thousands of years ago, it wasn't only us that were exiled. 
everything that it meant to be Jewish was exiled, including even the melodies that were played by the Levites in the Holy Temple. And you're not going to believe it. In that forest, what I heard was one of the melodies that the Levites played in the Holy Temple. And it went out to exile. It was captured by the Klipot. It was captured by, by the forces of impurity. I had to save it. I had to ransom it. I had to pay the ransom. That's why I paid the boy. I paid the boy. I was able to pay it back, free it, so that it could go back up to its creator. What does it mean to be, before we touch upon the story for a moment, what does it mean when we say a down-to-earth Kabbalist? What is a Kabbalist? The role of a Kabbalist, let's have another sort of working term if you like, and you can, at the end, we can open up for questions and someone wants to offer something else. When the world was created, there was, there was a big drama, a cosmic drama, and there was a huge fracture, and tiny little bits of pieces went everywhere of everything. And you have forces of purity and forces of impurity. You have forces of evil against the forces of good, and they're scattered everywhere. It's a mess. Everything is deunified. Everything is what we say, what we call in modern day Hebrew, a balagan, a real mess. What is the purpose of a Kabbalist? The purpose of a Kabbalist is to unify the mess, is to show that God is in every little bit, every little tiny thing, even a melody in the forest. And so the, 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 the Kabbalist has two purposes. One purpose is to unify what's going on in heaven. What does that mean? There is, a, there is a feminine and masculine aspect of God in heaven. And the biggest fear of the Kabbalist is that there, is that there will be a, a heavenly divorce. The biggest fear of the Kabbalist is that the feminine and masculine aspect of God uh, depart and they must be unified. And they must be protected from the forces of evil. And the best way to do that is by unifying everything in existence in this earthly world. And the way this is done is by collecting these sparks. It's by differentiating between what's impure and pure and what's and turning impure into pure. That's in a nutshell. So what's going on in this story, right? So if that's a Kabbalist, what's a down-to-earth Kabbalist? So we have here the Baal Shem Tov. In the mid 18th century, as I mentioned, that the Jewish world is fractured. There have been pogroms. It is horrific, right? You have Jews who have been sent drowning, burnt. You have Torah scrolls that are turned into sandals that are then used to tread upon Jews. And then you have Magidim and this horrific hierarchy where only those that are rich enough to be able to teach go and teach. And where do they teach? In the study hall. And who has money for a study hall? So the Baal Shem Tov. He starts something different. He takes his students out into the woods and he tells them a story. Why does he tell them a story? Because everyone understands stories. In a moment, we are going to see how this is ontologically so, so important, how this connects to 13th century Kabbalah, how this connects to the Zohar. But, but for right now, everyone understands stories. So the first thing that's interesting is that our rabbi, Rabbi the Baal Shem Tov, isn't really a rabbi. He's more like he's, he's a wanderer. He's a down-to-earth Kabbalist who's not in the study hall. He's out in the open. He's out in the woods. And the lesson he's teaching is not a drasha. It's not a sermon. There are no pieces of paper. There's an oral story that he's telling that anyone can connect to. And there are many different layers to it. There is a simple layer. 
there is a mediocre layer and there is a very deep and profound layer and there's something for everyone. And the second interesting thing is that he, he is, there is clearly an aspect of the Baal Shem Tov as a miracle worker, right? Because here we have this magnificent story of an individual who is able to free a captured melody from the time of the holy temple, right? This is sort of what's going on here. This is this is so different, right? This this is this is the start of the revolution. It's these sort of stories. So this is the Baal Shem Tov at his prime. This is how we open up in order to get a taste of where we are. We're not in the study halls, and what we're soon going to see is how this sort of revolution even brought stories into the study halls and even created a new kind of Judaism, a new kind of window to God where even rabbis within study halls understand that there is something that we need to, we need to take in from this, from this chassidut, right? That everything is different. We are no longer sitting and trying to teach a child text because not all the children know text. Most Jews are illiterate. That, that's the truth. It was the truth during the second temple. It was the truth perhaps during the first temple. It's the truth in 18th century. Most Jews are illiterate. So we need to tell them stories. As I mentioned at the beginning, there is a deep, profound connection between the, the necessity of telling stories and the core of the Baal Shem Tov's teaching, the core of Hasidut, which we are going to touch upon right now. We don't have anything that the Baal Shem Tov wrote. We don't have any of his writing, right? Because he told stories. We, we have one letter. We have one letter that we are told that he wrote. It is a letter that he wrote to his brother-in-law, Rabbi Gershon of Kitov, who was also one of these Jewish poster boys that was turned. It took a while, but he sort of turned. Um, and, and okay, so the story, just a word on the translation here and a word on the text itself. Um, the Baal Shem Tov's letter to his brother-in-law has survived in several manuscripts. It's very important because there is a variance in the manuscripts. What you have here is I've sort of combined things because if you, for example, read on certain websites, I won't mention their names, there are certain websites that will censor certain parts of this letter, whether it's the, you know, perhaps because it's too difficult to handle the truth. In any event, I followed by and large uh, Professor Jonathan Dauber's translation for bits that I've taken from, from Dauber's translation and others I've taken from, from uh, the Hebrew and I've translated and sort of put it together. Okay, so, so let's see what is the one and only thing that the Baal Shem Tov write the start of the Hasidic movement and its connection to stories, let's see what he wrote. On Rosh Hashanah, on the eve 1746, I performed by means of oath an elevation of soul to the highest spiritual realms. Um, so an elevation of the soul is a, is a, is a, a Kabbalistic practice, right? This goes back to um, uh, 13th century, perhaps the time of Rabbi Abraham of Lafia or different Kabbalists. The idea is, the peak, perhaps, and even Maimonides talks about this in a philosophical way, the peak, the sort of elitist peak, you know, of mankind or of a Jew is cleaving to God, how we can become one with God. And so the practice of the elevation of the soul is being able to have a certain part, the spiritual part of our body, the soul, uh, depart 
and go up to a different realm to do what needs to happen. And we go above time and then we're able to be somewhere else. Okay, so the Baal Shem Tov performs an elevation of soul to the highest spiritual realms, as you know, and I and saw wondrous things I'd never seen before. That which I saw and learned, there is, it is impossible to convey in words, even face to face. When I returned to the lower garden of Eden, right? This is this is incredible. Like we don't we didn't even know we're in the garden of Eden. Now we're told, right? So when I returned to the lower garden of Eden, I saw innumerable souls, both living and dead, some whom I knew and others whom I did not. They were fleeting back and forth, going from one universe to another through the column that is known to those who de delve in mysteries. Their state of joy was so great that lips could not express it and the physical ear too gross to hear it. There were also many wicked people. This is very important when we talk about social hierarchies and who deserves a second chance. There were also many wicked people who, who had repented. Their sins were forgiven since there was a special time of grace. Even to my eyes, it was wondrous how many were accepted as penitents, many of whom you know, right? He's telling this to Gershon of Quito. There was great joy among them too, and they also ascended in the above mentioned manner. All of them beseeched and petitioned me unceasingly because of the glory of your Torah, the Baal Shem Tov's Torah. God granted you greater understanding to perceive and know these things. Ascend with us so that you can be here and be, uh, uh, be our help and support. Because of the great joy that I saw among them, I decided to ascend with them, right? It's a great party up there. So he goes up with them. And I saw in the vision that Smael, Smael is um, possibly the reason why angels don't have free will. He's the first angel to go against God, an angel that becomes a sort of a demon, if you like, very nasty character. Um, and I saw in a vision that Smael ascended to prosecute Likatreg in Hebrew with unparalleled happiness. And he decreed apostasy upon a number of people who would be killed in extraordinary manners. I was gripped by fear and I was actually willing to give up my life to avert the decree. And I asked my master. So we know this is in brackets. Um, according to stories and tradition, the Baal Shem Tov spiritual teacher, like, you know, some had Elijah that came to them. He had a Chiyashiloni who is a biblical character and uh, the book of Kings, um, his soul would come and teach. There was, a, I guess, a, a very special connection between Achiyashiloni and the Baal Shem Tov. So I asked my master Achiyashiloni to come with me because it was very dangerous to go and ascend to the upper world. Because although I have acquired wisdom, I have not ascended in a session like this one. I ascended from level to level until I enter the chamber of the Mashiach, right, the Messiah, he enters the chamber of the Messiah, we were in the higher Garden of Eden, went down to the lower Garden of Eden, now we're in the chamber of Messiah, where the Messiah learns Torah with all the sages and the tzaddikim and all of the seven shepherds. I saw great joy there, but I did not know the reason for it. At first, I thought that the reason for this joy was because I had passed away from the physical world, heaven forbid. Later, they told me that my time had not yet come to die. Since they had great pleasure on high when I bring about unifications through the Holy Torah. Remember the down-to-earth Kabbalist, it's about unifying things. Unifications through the Holy Torah down below. To this very day, I do not know the reason for that joy. Now, there is a dialogue between Baal Shem Tov and the Messiah. I asked the Messiah, when will the master come? And he answered, by this you shall know. This is your sign. In the time when you teach in your, the, your teaching will become public and revealed in the world, 
and your wellspring will burst forth to the farthest extremes, that which I have taught you and you have comprehended, and they also shall be able to perform unifications and elevations as you. And then all of the klipot, all of the, the forces of evil will cease to exist, right? They're the ones that want to create greater fracture and deunify, and deunify the world. And there shall be a time of goodwill and salvation. I stood in wonder and great distress as to the length of time necessary for this. When can this be, right? When will this happen? So the Messiah has told the Baal Shem Tov, when am I going to come? When everyone knows your teachings. Well, when's that going to happen? But from that which I learned there, three uh, potent practices and three holy names, easy to learn and, and explain, my mind settled. And I thought that possibly by means of these, men of my nature will be able to achieve levels similar to mine. They would then be able to ascend, learn, and perceive just like myself, but I was not given permission all of the days of my life to reveal this. This is the only written document that we have that we can somehow connect directly to the Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov, right? So, so we try and learn this back and forth. What can we learn from here? So the first interesting thing is just like our experience in the story a moment ago, this too is a story. The, the one text that we have from the Baal Shem Tov, it's a story. It's not a drasha. There is a story here. There is something that anyone can relate to and connect to. It's incredible. Right? There is a, a theme, a reoccurring theme here, that the importance of the story, the importance of a simple story. That, that's number one. Now, number two. Um, so I mentioned before in the first story, when we're in the forest, we're telling a story and we're out in the forest because not everyone has money for the study hall, right? If we're going to create a revolution, which also includes the locksmith and it includes the, the you know, the, the guy driving the wagon, we can't be telling stories and stuff. We can't be telling Torah. We can't be bringing Messiah through, through a study hall. We have to be where the people are. So the first story sort of, alludes to the social structure, to the hierarchy, and to the Baal Shem Tov, this mystical David Copperfield, this down-to-earth Kabbalist who wants to shatter, who wants to break this. Now, what we see here in this story, interestingly, is we still have a story, but there are levels. It's clear and apparent from this that the Baal Shem, that there are only several kind of people that, that, that have knowledge of names and to use names. But at the same time, it seems important for the Baal Shem Tov that everyone should know about this. It's fine to know about this. And guess what? Everyone has a role. We're going to see this in a moment. Everyone has a role to play. This is the vital message. That that there are several, there are, there are few that can do things that others can't, doesn't mean that we don't need everyone to bring Messiah. And this brings us to Messiah, right? Because it's all about redemption. So what have the Jewish people experienced up until this point? Up until the Baal Shem Tov, you know, enters the stage of history, or by the time the Baal Shem Tov enters the stage of history, to utter the word Messiah is a very, very sensitive topic. Now, why is it a sensitive topic? Because not long ago, in fact, in his time, we have the Frankist movement. We have Jacob Frank, who is a false messiah, who... who essentially comes in, 
he follows the footsteps of another false messiah, a great, perhaps the greatest false messiah, Sabtai Tzvi, Shabtai Tzvi. And the Jewish world can't hear this anymore. In fact, if, if before Shabtai Tzvi, 100 years before Shabtai Tzvi, the Ari, Rabbi Isaac Luria and Sfad at the age of 37, the whole purpose of what was going on in Tzfat in the 16th century, there was one purpose. There was one purpose for Rabbi Yosef Karo writing the Shulchan Aruch, writing the Code of Law. There was one purpose for Rabbi Moshe Cordovero to, to philosophize on Kabbalah. There was one purpose for the Arizal to come and rekindle the light and tell the stories of the importance of reincarnation. There was one purpose. It was to prepare the Jewish people for the coming of the Messiah. He was meant to come any day, any moment. Chabad's Messiah now, that starts in Tzfat. That starts with the Re-Isaac Luria. And when the Arizal passes away and he does not come, something happens. So if, if, if the knife is in the heart, and, and we thought it was going to happen and it didn't happen, and then Shabtai Tzvi, a false Messiah comes, and then another one comes, you want to utter the word Messiah, you better be very careful. So within this context, I don't think it's by chance that the one document we have from the Baal Shem Tov, this is absolutely fascinating, very carefully talks about Messiah. There is almost an incredible awareness, almost as if there is a message that has to come across. Everybody, let's make it clear, I am not Messiah. I spoke to Messiah. I'm not Messiah. But there is another super important message that no one did before him. He wants to let the masses know. When will Messiah come? Messiah said, when everyone knows your teachings. What is the Baal Shem Tov's project? Self-redemption. We all need to self-redeem ourselves. We all need to fix ourselves. We are all important. How do we know this, right? This whole letter doesn't tell us what the teaching is. It tells us there is a teaching. For this, for this, we need the Baal Shem Tov's grandson, right? So if the Messiah said, I'm going to come when everyone knows your teachings. Okay, so, so, so now let's see what the grandson has to say. But before the grandson, in the 13th century, no, 14th century, there's a debate, but never mind. You could even say, oh, it doesn't matter. In an old Kabbalistic book, one of the most important sentences is the following in Aramaic. Let atal panui mine. There is no place, nowhere is empty of him. Zintikune zoar, nowhere is empty of him. Right? God is everywhere. Okay. Okay. Now, Remember we said that, that, that a Kabbalist is a down-to-earth, a Hasid is a down-to-earth Kabbalist. What does that mean? So in the 13th century, in the rise, the crystallization of Kabbalah, you could say that Kabbalists were elitists. They were, right? The, 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 the Zohar and other Kabbalists, they weren't elitist in the sense that, the, that their role was to fix the world. Their role was to help create, strengthen and connect the Jewish community in order to unify the upper world and the physical world. In that sense, they were not elitist at all, but they were elitist in the sense that this is knowledge that only a select few can and should use. And so the, 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 the standpoint 
is sort of from here looking up, right? The Kabbalist is constantly within their own realm, looking up and thinking, how can we, how can we execute nowhere is empty of him? What do we need to do? So this is 13th century Kabbalah. What does it mean when we say that a Hasid is a down to earth Kabbalist? It means we are bringing this down to the masses. It means we are bringing this down to earth. It means we are bringing this down and all over to all of the community. How do we see this? So now we're ready to see what, what the grandson has to say. This is from, so, so Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov's grandson, Rabbi Ephraim or Rabbi Moshe Chaim Ephraim of Sodikov. Um, he wrote a commentary on the Bible called Degil Machane Ephraim. And it's a very important Hasidic book because beyond giving Hasidic interpretation to the Bible, to the five books of Moses, every so often, he says, and this is something I heard from grandpa, right? This is what grandpa taught me. So, so we, we, we're very interested to know what did grandpa teach you, right? This is, we're looking, grandpa didn't leave us anything. We don't know. We have one letter. That's it. So grandpa taught you something we want to know. So what does he have to say? There I searched for you in the very attributes and places which were far from you. There I searched for you until I had found and showed the presence of your glory to be there as well. And nowhere is empty of you. Notice what's happened here. Notice what's happened here. Very important. What has the down-to-earth Kabbalist done? For, the Kabbalist is learning Kabbalah. It is elitist. And we are told nowhere is empty of him. Right? God is far away. What has our Hasid done? Nowhere is empty of you. Now, let's just put this in context for a moment. Maimonides right? 12th century Maimonides, um, you know, creates a great philosophical rational revolution in Judaism, but it comes at a price. And the price is that God suddenly is this um, uh, uh, first mover, first mover. God is someone that we, we don't really know anymore if he's listening to all of our prayers. So in come the dynamic Kabbalists in the 13th century, and they say, uh-uh, there is the Ensof, there is the God that Maimonides spoke about that we can't touch, but there is also the, the, the Shekhinah. There is God that is everywhere watching over and nowhere is empty of him. That's in the 13th century. But the Hasid has to bring this even closer, even warmer to make a real connection. What did grandpa teach? One of grandpa's greatest teachings was don't say nowhere is empty of him. Say nowhere is empty of you. We are now in dialogue. I'm bringing God even close. I'm bringing God into the room, into the room of the locksmith, into everyone's room. As it is written, and David blessed the Lord in the presence of the entire congregation. And I heard from grandpa that David physically showed the entire congregation that the whole world is filled with his glory. Okay, so, so, so we just saw now, um, we just read the only teaching we have of the Baal Shem Tov. It's a letter. It's a story that he wrote. We are told, and we now understand that uttering the, the word Messiah at that time is very sensitive. We understand that he's very carefully told us that he spoke to the Messiah, and Messiah said, when am I going to come? When everyone knows your teachings. It is thanks to the grandson that we know what grandpa taught him. And what is the core teaching? That nowhere is empty of you. What does that mean when we say socially? What are the social ramifications of nowhere is empty of you? 
It means that if a locksmith, it means that, that, that if someone that's in a barn all day hears that nowhere is empty of you, and we understand that the practice of a down-to-earth Kabbalist is to, you know, to, 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 to we, we need to fix the impurity. We need to turn impurity into purity. Then everyone's important. Then a core part of the Baal Shem Tov's teaching of Hasidut is that nowhere is empty of you. And nowhere is empty of you does not only mean theologically that God is everywhere, but sociologically, anthropologically, it means that God needs all of us. God needs all of us to redeem ourselves. Each and every one of us have an important role to play in self-redemption in order for Messiah to come. Right. So this, 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 this is huge. Okay. So, so at this point, we, we now need to move to the Baal Shem Tov's deathbed because it all seems very promising. But, but, but things can get a bit complicated. Okay, so on the Baal Shem Tov's deathbed, um, he, he summons his disciples and he tells each and every one of us, of them, right? This is the second story. He tells each and every one of them how they're going to make their livelihood, their parnosa, how they're going to make a living, what they're going to do. And he says to one, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And then he comes to Rabbi Yaakov. Rabbi Yaakov great rationalist, another philosopher of, of Hasidut, Rabbi Yaakov, Yosef of Polny. He comes to Rabbi Yaakov and says, and Rabbi Yaakov, you know, must be thinking, oh, he's going to tell me, write books, write important books, right? You know, about, about you know, the, the sort of manifesto of the Hasidic movement. And what does the Baal Shem Tov say to him? He says to Rabbi Yaakov, your job, your livelihood is going to be telling bubamices, telling stories about me. The, the stories that, that, that went on, you're going to go tell stories. That'll be your living. We are told that Rabbi Yaakov is a bit, you know, upset about this, but, you know, it's what the master's told him to do. So he does this. And he starts going around. The Baal Shem Tov passes away, 1760. And Rabbi Yaakov goes from village to village and he starts telling stories, making a few bucks. Um, but, but, you know, he's, he's, he's not happy about this. But, but he does it because that's what he's told. He's a, he's a follower. He's a Hasid. He knows there's some importance in this. But he, he, he's still trying to connect to the importance of a story. How can, how, what is a story? One day he hears that in a faraway place, there is a, a man living in a very big fancy castle um, and he's willing to give quite a few gold coins for a single story of the Baal Shem Tov. Rabbi Yaakov thinks, this is incredible. I go to this one place, I, I have thousands of stories. I won't, ha I won't have to go around telling stories ever again. This is wonderful. He goes, he packs up his bag. He goes to the faraway place. He gets there. He summons the, the servant of, of, of the, the rich guy that owns the castle and says, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm here. You know, I'm, I'm a disciple. I was a disciple of the Baal Shem Tov. I have many stories. I, I hear your master likes, wants stories. I'd be happy to share a story. The servant says, I don't even have to check with my master. He'd love for you to come. Come on Friday night, right? What better time? Come Friday night. And, you know, to tell any story you want. Rabbi Yaakov gets dressed, gets ready. You know, they go, they daven, they go to shul, they come. They meet in the guy's castle, you know, fabulous feast. Everyone waits. Everyone's, you know, whispering, what's he going to say? Rabbi Yaakov's forgotten. He doesn't have a story. 
he's embarrassed. He, he, he says to the host, look, you know, this never happened to me before. I, I don't know what to do. I, you know, um, the host says, look, it, it's okay. You know, come tomorrow for lunch. I'm sure it'll, you know, you're just tired from the journey. He goes, he comes back. They pray, Shabbat lunch, same thing. Whispering, what's going on? The host still ever so patient. Come for come for the third meal before the end of Shabbos. It's okay. He goes, he comes back. No story. The whispering now is, is you can already hear what they're saying. He's already, you know, not nice whisperings that, you know, he's a fraud, you know, what's going on. But the host, you know, it's okay. Look, take until Tuesday, you know, just, just like just take your time, come back, you know, by Tuesday, if you don't have, you know, I'll understand you have to go. Rabbi Yaakov goes back to his, to his motel. He's very upset. You know, he's, he's saying to himself, this isn't happening for nothing. I, I know it's not happening for nothing. This, you know, it's probably because I didn't want to tell the Baal Shem Tov stories. There's, there's some punishment here. There's a reason for this happening. It's because I thought, you know, I wasn't happy doing what I was told to do. It's because I came here thought I, thought I could make a quick buck. Uh, comes Tuesday, he doesn't have a story gets the horses ready and he's ready to go home, upset. He enters into the carriage and all of a sudden he remembers one story. He remembers one frightening story. He quickly heads back to the place. He says, you know, is it too late? And the guy says, no, no, of course, come in, come in, come in. He says, look, I don't know what happened. I was, I was heading off with the horses. I remember one story. I remember once that it was, it was a, a, a Shabbat afternoon and we were sitting in Mezhibuz in the study hall and the Baal Shem Tov said, you know, right, the moment Shabbos out, grab the horses, we got to go somewhere, right? Get into the DeLorean, we're going somewhere. That was the DeLorean once. It was this sort of carriage. That was the Baal Shem Tov's DeLorean. We're going somewhere. They go somewhere. He doesn't know where. They arrive in a place and the Baal Shem Tov uh, uh, walks between the streets. He brings his disciples, Rabbi Yaakov, with him. And they, they knock on a door. An old lady opens the door and says, are you crazy? Jews here, what are you doing? Just yeah, you know, it's just before Christmas, just yesterday, they caught the rabbi's son, killed him. What are you doing? Bugger off. The Baal Shem Tov says, Let us in. He pushes the door open, he goes in, and he doesn't even ask. The Baal Shem Tov goes up the spiral staircase, overlooking the center square of, of the little town, and he's looking. And the lady's yelling, what are you doing? What are you doing? Hide. They're going to come, the Gentiles, they're going to come, they're going to kill you. They, they know you came. The Baal Shem Tov isn't listening. He sees a commotion. He sees a lot of people coming towards the center square. And, and then he sees, he hears the bells ringing. The bishop is coming. The bishop is coming to give his sermon for, for just before Christmas. And he says, Rabbi Yaakov, go tell the bishop to come here. The lady says, what are you nuts? He's, you're going to get us all killed. He says, Rabbi Yaakov, don't be afraid. Just go do what I told you. Rabbi Yaakov isn't afraid because he knows if the Baal Shem Tov said this, there's a reason. Rabbi Yaakov runs down, he goes, he tell, he, he whispers in Hebrew to the bishop. The Baal Shem Tov the Baal Shem Tov's calling you. The bishop says in Hebrew, I'll come after my, my sermon. Rabbi Yaakov goes back, goes up the spiral staircase, tells the Baal Shem Tov, he's giving a sermon now, he'll come afterwards. The Baal Shem Tov says to him, you tell him not to be a fool and to come right now. Well, Rabbi Yaakov heads back down. At this point, the old lady, she's not saying a word. Uh, Rabbi Yaakov heads down. He, he whispers to the, uh, 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 to the bishop, you know, Baal Shem Tov says, don't be a fool, come right now. 
The bishop says to the crowd, you know, just, just wait a moment, I'll be right back. He, he follows Rabbi Yaakov, he goes up to the attic. The Baal Shem Tov asks them all to, to, to leave. And for several hours, the Baal Shem Tov and the bishop are there alone. And then Rabbi Yaakov says to the host in the, the castle, he says, the truth is, I don't remember where this place was or who this person was, but, but this story just suddenly came to mind. And the host then says to him, now I have a story for you. Um, I, I was that bishop. Um, I, uh, I used to be a Jew. I, I am a Jew. And at some point, I, you know, went, went off, you know, the, the wrong path um, and, uh, you know, became a bishop, got a good education. And, and, and because, of my, because of my fathers and mothers, I had a righteous lineage, the Baal Shem Tov would come to me in dreams and he would say, repent, repent. And I always wanted to, I really wanted to. And he kept coming and saying, repent. But then the big Christmas sermon came and it's a huge, it's an extravaganza. You know, my, my ego got to me and I, I, I said to myself, I'm, I'm going to give the sermon. It's, just, it's, it's my big moment. It's my, 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 you know, 15 minutes of fame. And then you came and whispered to me. And the first time you came and I, I recognize you, I know it was you. You came and said to me, the Baal Shem Tov's calling, I, I, I wanted to go, but I, my ego wouldn't let me. I, 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 the, the people, the bells, they were waiting. But when you came back a second time, I, you know, it, it helped. And, and I went to the Baal Shem Tov. And the Baal Shem Tov did what he did. And he, did, he tried to fix my soul. And he said to me, I've done the best I can. I've done the best I can. Know that you will be truly redeemed when one day someone comes and tells you the story that just occurred. And so he says to, to Rabbi Yaakov, so I waited and waited and waited and, and nothing happened. And, and then you show up. And when you didn't have a story to tell me, I didn't repent. I knew I, I didn't yet do tshuva. I didn't return to God fully. And so while, while you were thinking of your story, I understood it wasn't you, it was me. It's not you, it's me. I was the one that had to repent. And now that you've told your story, I, I'm redeemed. So, so please, and, and, he, and he ends, he gives him all the gold he wants and and. And this is how our story concludes. Now, this is a fascinating story because there are so many stories within this story. There are so many viewpoints within the story. But what this story perhaps is most remarkable for is that it points to the power of the story. The Baal Shem Tov is no longer alive, yet the story is a vehicle to redeem two men that think that the other one needs to be redeemed, right? The guy in the castle, the, the ex-bishop, thinks he's the one that needs to be redeemed. And Rabbi Yaakov is sure that he's the one that needs to be redeemed. And we don't even know what the Baal Shem Tov was thinking of who else needs to be redeemed. Perhaps someone in the story that we are telling right now. There are so many angles to it. And, and when the grandson learns from his grandpa that nowhere is, nowhere is empty of you, even within a story, 
Imagine the following scene. You go pay your condolences. Someone has just passed away. You pay a shiver call and you tell a story about the deceased. According to what we just learned, that story ontologically is recreating a reality. If God is everywhere, he's not, he, he's not only in each and every one of us, and therefore there are social ramifications, and we all need to fix ourselves, and even the locksmith is important, and we've shattered the social hierarchy. But we've also learned that God is literally in everything and everywhere, even inside a story. Stories have the capability to, to, to change realities, to connect between past, present, and future. Our time is short, so I will, I will conclude with, with a final story, because then we should leave it for just a little bit of uh, uh, room for discussion, uh, um, just to sort of drive this point for, uh, uh, home. Um, so that there's another a famous, and, and this is, so we've told the story of the Baal Shem Tov, it is prime on his deathbed. And now we are going to tell us, which, which in truth went until he passed away. Now we're going to tell a story long after the Baal Shem Tov had passed away. We are told that the Baal Shem Tov, whenever there was a great tragedy that befell the Jewish people, he would go to a specific place in the woods. He would light a fire and he would pray. And those three actions, going in the woods, lighting the fire, telling, saying, uttering the specific words of that prayer, would save the Jewish people. The Baal Shem Tov knew how to do this. When the Baal Shem Tov passed away, and there was another tragedy befalling upon the Jewish people, the Maggid of Mezrich, his prized pupil, together with Rabbi Yaakov, he would famously go into the woods, and he'd say, I know the spot in the woods, I know to utter the prayer, but I don't know how to light the fire. I don't know how to do it how he did it. And it was still okay. And then the Maggid of Mezrich's disciple from Sasov, he is famously known for saying, I know to go into the forest. I know the spot in the forest, but I don't know how to utter the prayer. And I don't know how to light the fire. But it was enough. Just by going to that place in the forest, Jewish people were saved. And then came the Rojin Arav, Rabbi Israel Rojin, Rabbi Israel named, the great grandson named after the Baal Shem Tov, Rabbi Israel. And he said, he, he would sit in his armchair. He lived in this golden palace. Rojin is a story in itself. He would sit in his golden palace. And you know, he'd sulk and he'd say, Right when, 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 when tragedy befallen the Jewish people, he'd say, I don't know where the place is in the woods. I don't know how to light the fire. I don't even know how to utter the words of prayer that the Baal Shem Tov did, but I know how to tell the story. And surely that should be enough, and it was. Right? Hence, the, the, the story has the power, not only as a vehicle for, for a simple individual to simply tell a story and not, not necessarily understand what they're doing, but making magic happen. And what we can take from this, perhaps, is as I mentioned, you know, you go pay condolences, you go tell someone a story. What does Hasidicism have to say to us about this? That nowhere is empty of you, God, even in a story that we have to say. And, and what is the purpose of the story we're about to tell? What are we trying to fix? What are we trying to mend? What are we trying to do? So this is our story. We've tried in, in, in the sort of short time that we have uh, to talk a little bit about uh, this new window to God, that 
perhaps the core teaching of the Baal Shem Tov, this idea that nowhere is empty of you, of God. It is this sort of down-to-earth Kabbalist, uh, uh, um, and that the implication of nowhere is empty of you is that everyone matters. And if everyone matters, we need a new system, a new way of teaching Torah that can apply to everyone. And that isn't always in the study hall, but it's through stories. And if God is everywhere, it means that it's not only important for each and every one of us to redeem ourselves from Messiah to come, but that we can all use stories, this powerful vehicle in order to redeem ourselves and to redeem others. Now we'll uh, open it up if there are any uh, uh, questions or comments. Um, and thank you very much. Amazing, Johnny, thank you so much. Friends, in the interest of time, since we only have about eight minutes, why don't we hear from a few people at once with questions, and then we can give Johnny the closing words in response to those questions, if that's okay for you. Of course. Great, okay, feel free to unmute yourself, friends. I just had a comment. It's not really a question, but um, it seems like the important part of the storytelling is that two people have to come together. Um, it's it's in the telling and the listening that people receive the the redemption or the teachings. I guess it is a question. Is that correct? Come again. What, what was the last sentence? Um, it, it just seems like it's not just the story or the telling of the story, but it's that both people have to be part of the experience, which is really interesting. I think that's really central to what you're saying. Exactly, exactly. I'll even, I'll, I'll uh, if Shmuley will let me, I'll hop in another. Okay. Yeah, Shmuley? Yeah, please go ahead, yeah. So, okay, so uh, just another story to, who asked the question? What's your name? My name's Rachel. Rachel, so yeah, so. I'll give you an example. It goes beyond the interaction. What you said is spot on because it's, it's a social thing that we need to do. We need to fix each other and help each other. And it's beyond cleaving to God, but cleaving, it's, it's in fact finding God in the dialogue between us, right? It's in a sort of booba kind of way. And, 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 and there are many stories. In fact, we don't have time because I do want the questions, um, which also include Gentiles. And there are stories that connect between a Jew, a Gentile, and an inanimate object. And the idea is not only imagine, it's not only about connecting one, one Jew to another, but it's one human being to another, and even one human being to a rock or to a tree, or to understand, you know, beyond person to person, but person is part of the cosmos and, 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 and you know, the, the ramifications of us living in the world. You know, is it okay to pick a rose? Is it okay to throw a rock or to use it for something? And what are we doing when we do these things? Excellent, excellent point. Yeah, Joan? Um, hi. I have a, a very um, kind of down-to-earth question for now. And I was kind of, I was hoping to make a connection between the beginning and teachings of Hasidim um, to what's happening now with the pandemic and what, what the stories are behind the reasons that the Hasidic communities are not willing or able to comply with public health measures. So th that's, that's a very good question. I, I won't get entirely into it. I'll just say one thing. Um, so what we didn't have time to touch upon is uh, that there are also specific 
stories for specific Hasidic sects. Let's take Breslov. Breslov, it was known, famous, that even in the, in, in the heat of the pandemic, they would, go, they, they would go to Breslov no matter what, right? Rosh Hashanah, they, they'd yes. wait there, go, it didn't matter. All I will say, I'm not a Breslov Hasid, you know, I have to say this, but all I will say is that without a deep understanding of the stories of Breslov and the tradition, one must be, you know, not be quick to judge because it really is fascinating. I, I've, I've sat with Breslov Hasidim throughout the pandemic. I've, I've heard fascinating stories. It's, and again, it's like, it's like the re redeeming process within a story and understanding where each of us are coming from and understanding where for me, I can't understand something and someone else sees something a different way. Mm -hmm. But in any event, because it's a huge question, it's worth really getting into understanding the stories of Breslov specifically. And by the way, I'll just say in brackets, then I'll conclude for the next person. In my mind, Rabbi Nachman was, Rabbi Nachman's stories, uh, they're, they're perfect creations. They're, they're, they're sort of, I can't even explain how, it, it's like, it, it's being able to say, I'm going to tell a story that anyone can understand, even a child. And as a child grows and develops in their life, they're going to suddenly understand certain words, certain scenes. And mm -hmm. once they learn Maimonides and once they learn Zohar and once they go read Nietzsche and other stuff, they're all of a sudden dots are going to connect and poof, it, 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 it's, it's, it's complicated, but, but, but it's a great point. It really is a great point worth the talk in itself. Um, who else had a question or comment? Okay. Excellent. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. We hope you'll continue to learn, what, learn with us. We have our 10 o'clock, 40 best of debates, 10 o'clock Pacific every Tuesday morning. And our next class is Honeybees and Torah with Rabbi Amiela, uh, Amalia Haas on um, Wednesday, November 17th. We have more sessions with Johnny and many others coming up. Thank you for joining us and ha have a wonderful Thank day. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybatemidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.